energy. So the barber trims my beard all nice, like an artist. Now I didn't tell him to do that. I wanted the beard gone. So then I went home and shaved it off completely after I was done. I felt horrible. The passion. Rafael Devers is the biggest contract in franchise history. He needs to be a leader for this Red Sox team. The opinions on all your favorite team. Are the Patriots close to playoff contention? Yes. Are they close to Super Bowl contention? Hell no. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Happy St. Patty's Day here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We have a full show today, all 90 minutes. We will go up until 7 o'clock. Then at that point, for the second straight night, we give way to NCAA tournament coverage. Good games going on right now. Pitt leaving, uh, leading Iowa State by 10. Iona right now trying to pull an upset on UConn. They're up four, getting towards the end of the first half. Creighton up seven on uh, NC State. About eight and a half minutes to go. So we'll have the night session here. Kentucky and Providence, one of the prominent games that we've featured on our coverage again, starting at seven o'clock. We'll take you up through the entirety of the night. So you can get on in as always on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and in Morrisville as well. We're going to talk a lot of Catamount basketball in a minute. I will tell you, this is going to be maybe the weirdest show of my entire career. I've been doing this now, I don't know, nine years or so, I think. And I've had kind of a daily presence on the radio for like seven years. This is probably going to be the weirdest show I've ever done. Because I'm doing this show almost entirely off the cuff. In that, usually I have three or four or five pages of notes in front of me. Right When you're just talking to yourself and the texters, there's nobody to bail you out of conversation. You have to have all your notes in front of you. So I have a lot of notes in front of me. But because the entirety of our content today is basically the UVM game, and I was doing the afternoon news service, I had no time to make notes. So I have a couple of scribbles on a sheet of paper, and that's how we're going to go today. So feel free. Get on in. 802-585-3026. The show is brought to you, as always, by Fecto Homes. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. Well, the opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. UVM men's basketball team this season comes to an end after 23 regular season victories. The Catamounts are done. They won a couple more games in the America East Tournament as well. Final score, Marquette 78, UVM 61. This game was close throughout the first half. UVM was down six with about 45 seconds to go, and then some kind of weird funkiness happened. They end up down nine at the half. Cats came back, clawed back in it. We're down 45-40 at one point, and then at that point, Marquette turned on the defensive Jets, and they got real aggressive, and they rolled from there. So it's a 17-point blowout on your stat sheet, but really this game was competitive for probably 27 of the 40 minutes before Marquette took it over. We'll take your text again on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line. We'll talk about where the Cats go from here, things I'll miss most about this team. Broadcaster Brian McLaughlin is going to join us in the 6 o'clock hour live, I think, from the team hotel. So uh, once he gets back to the hotel, he's going to stop by and join us. Let's just let's just start with the basics here. Throughout the course of the week, we have given you kind of the anatomy of an upset. If a team is going to pull an upset, the following things need to happen. UVM accomplished almost none of those things today. And look, it's not unexpected. A two seed is supposed to beat a 15. A two seed is supposed to be able to beat a 15 by 17 points like Marquette beat UVM. So am I mad at this final result? No. Am I disappointed at it? Yes. And were there things that UVM had chances to do that they didn't? Yes, absolutely. 
But when you look at the anatomy of an upset, UVM did almost none of the things you would need to do. One, UVM got in foul trouble. When you are trying to pull an upset, you cannot get in foul trouble. Finn Sullivan got two fouls early in the first half. Robin Duncan got two fouls in the first half. Duncan picked up a third foul early in the second half. And the bottom line is this. When you are trying to pull an upset, you cannot afford to have your best players either on the bench or in the game but playing more timid and more fearful of picking up that next foul. And that's the situation that UVM found themselves in. You cannot pull an upset against a team that's ranked in the top 10 nationally with your best players on the bench or out there playing scared. And when you have foul trouble, that is the dynamic that gets created. Finn Sullivan, you look at this, man, he he only scored. Finn Sullivan had four points today, right? And part of the reason he only had four points because he wasn't on the floor enough early. And Robin Duncan is too valuable to this team to be sitting or to be having to play scared. Can't have it. So foul trouble is something you can't get in when you're the little guy. UVM got in foul trouble. We said UVM needed to get to and hit free throws. They hit 70% of their free throws, but they were 7 of 10. Marquette was 10 of 15. So you got outscored at the line. If you're going to pull an upset, UVM needed to get another 5 or 6 points at the line. Get their guys in foul trouble. And that didn't happen frequently enough. We said if UVM was going to win this game, they'd have to hit at least 10 threes, potentially 12. They hit eight. Now, eight is a good amount of threes, right? Don't get me wrong. Eight is a good amount of threes. But for the game, UVM shot 32% from three. Not good enough. Right? The Catamounts took 53 shots on the day. 25 of them were threes. If nearly half your shots are going to be threes, you're going to have to hit more than 32%. Too many times down the floor, UVM shoots a three way outside the lane or way outside the, the, the line, misses, can't get a rebound, one shot out, and boom, Marquette comes the other way in transition. Eight threes is nice. It's nice when you're playing Binghamton. It's nice when you're playing Albany. It's nice when you're playing NJIT. If you're going to beat Marquette, 10 12, but also of a better percentage. And UVM wasn't able to do it today. You look at where UVM was at from three. Matt Verretto, three of eight. Finn Sullivan, 0 of six. Aaron Deloney, one of four. We talked about UVM needing to shoot 33s. And then we talked about the guys that were going to need to hit them. Sullivan didn't hit any. Penn only took one. Verretto had three. That's good. Three of eight, not a great percentage. But bottom line, they did not do enough from beyond the arc. What else? The other um, must-haves, if you're going to pull an upset that UVM didn't get, we always say your stars have to play like stars. And UVM didn't get that today. Right? If you're going to pull an upset over a number two seed, you need the guys that have carried you all year to carry you again. UVM did not get that. Now, Dylan Penn had 11 points. I thought Dylan Penn played well. The stat sheet won't reflect it necessarily, but I thought he played well. Dylan Penn had a lot on his plate today, as we knew that he would. He was the guy who needed to have the ball in his hands. He had to deal with the pressure. He had to get to the lane. He had to create for everybody else, and he had to score himself. He had 11 points. He was 5 of 10 from the floor. I would have, like, this team needed him to get 18. They did, but I still think he played well. They didn't get the star effort offensively, but I thought Dylan Penn did pretty well. The guys around him they needed to be great weren't. Finn Sullivan had four points, and I like Finn a lot, and he and I got to know each other just a little bit towards the end of the season, and I know he sees what I say on social media, so I like Finn Sullivan. But if this team was going to win this game or was going to be in this game late, the America East Player of the Year needs to have more than four points and needs to be more efficient than 2 of 9 from the floor and 0 of 6 from 3. That's just reality. 
He had five points, or he had five assists. He had five rebounds. Those are some nice peripheral stats. I'm not saying that Finn Sullivan did not contribute. But too many fouls in the first half, not enough scoring. The player of the year in the conference has to be able to give you 15 to 18 if you're going to be in this game. Look, Finn Sullivan gets four. If he gets 15 and it's another 11, well, now all of a sudden it's a six-point game. Catamounts didn't get that. Then you look around, who else? I thought Deloney played fairly well. He had nine. I can live with that. Would I you know, I would have loved to see him at 12 or so. Varetto had 11. That's good. So some of the guys you needed to contribute, contributed. Varetto, I thought, did his job. Was he great percentage-wise at three of nine? No, but he scored 11 points. For a guy who hadn't played basketball competitively in three years, that's pretty darn good. I'll take it. Then... You know, Deloney gets nine points, three of six from the floor. I can live with that, too. Probably needed him to get 12 to 14, but he was he was around it. Sullivan is the guy that they really were lacking in. And then finally, if you're going to pull an upset, you can't get pummeled on the glass, and UVM got, you know... It, it's going to say they didn't get pummeled on the glass. They only got out-rebounded by one, but it felt a lot worse. Maybe some of those were late, but it felt a lot worse, especially offensively. I mean, I need the full stats here. Points in the paint, Marquette just absolutely killed them on. And I got to get – I'm going to have to pull up a different stat sheet here because that one's not showing me. But in the first half, it was like 18 points in the paint to like five or something for UVM. The things that were – Issues at the beginning of the year for this team were issues today at the end of the year. And that's kind of predictable. You're playing much better teams at the beginning of the year, and you're playing a better team at the end of the year. It's kind of predictable. But the things that were problems early were problems late. Catamounts couldn't get into lane easily, couldn't create good shots enough of the time. When they did create good shots, they couldn't hit enough. And then defensively, too many points in the paint. Marquette just dominated on the inside. I mean, Cam Jones got to the bucket at will in the second half. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, 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 oh, uh, Oso Igodaro had 14 points. I don't even think he missed a shot. I mean, these guys had their way on the inside. And you just... You just can't have that if you're UVM. We're trying to pull up the official box score because that box score from ESPN.com wasn't updated yet. I'm trying to get the official kind of stat sheet here on uh, on this game, and it's it's not put out yet. So this, this official box score is not completed at this point. But UVM got pummeled in the paint. They didn't get pummeled on the glass, but they got pummeled inside. So when you start to think about what you need to do to pull an upset, UVM just didn't do it. Just didn't do enough. Will uh, in Plattsburgh says Marquette played great D in the second half. Cats couldn't get in the paint. He's right about that. Now, I will give UVM credit. I actually liked some adjustments they made offensively. Now, we said all along Dylan Penn needed to be able to get in the paint needed to be able to create. They could not do that enough. But what UVM did do was spread out the floor a lot and allow whoever had the ball to have basically a one-on-one -on -one matchup. When the floor is that spread, kind of four-corner style, and everybody's Ding up on their guy, the middle of the floor was open a lot. UVM started to attack that and exploit that, and they did start to get some looks. They just didn't hit enough of them. They just didn't hit enough of them. Cam Gibson, you know, 2 of 5, Finn Sullivan 0 of 6, Ferretto 3 of 8. They needed to take 33s. They needed to make 10 to 12. They didn't do either. And that's kind of the story of the game. That's kind of the story of the game. All right. We'll step aside here on the Brady Farkas Show. We're brought to you by Fecto Homes. We'll get more into the game. We will talk about something that was a big positive. Not only in this game, but something that was a positive in this season. We'll talk about it next. Recapping the Cats and their loss to Marquette in the NCAA Tournament. Back here in a moment on the Brady Farkas Show. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, 
and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Catamount season ends today, losing in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Marquette. Final score, 78-61. to The Catamount women are on the floor tomorrow with three against UConn in Storrs, Connecticut. We know that's going to be, obviously, the definition of an uphill battle. We will focus on the men right now and wish the women good luck tomorrow. As negative as we can be about the result of this game, I do want to give some real credit to this team for this game, but also this season, in terms of how they came together. It's not easy to build a team. It's not easy to build team chemistry. And in today's sports, everybody focuses so much on analytics and metrics that I think we forget about team chemistry. I think we forget about team bonding and team building. It's not easy to do that stuff. This team had it. This team was very, very close. And I know that sounds cliche because we think all teams are close. Number one, they're not. But it sounds cliche, and I don't want to be. I want to give this team credit for coming together in a way that I think is difficult. Look at how this team was put together. This team had a lot of transfer players. Guys who were in their second year and were fighting for increased roles. And then new guys like Dylan Penn and like Matt Ferretto. And I specifically want to give Penn and Verretto credit. I think what they did this year and what they accomplished this year is extremely impressive. Penn we knew was good. It was clear by his bio and by his resume that he was really good at Bellarmine. And we expected him to come in and be really good. And yeah, it took a little bit of time, but I give him a lot of credit for the player that he became. Dylan Penn came in here with pressure. He told us at the beginning of the year, I came in here trying to be the scorer that I was expected to be. Then I had the broken hand, and it was hard to get going, and when should I attack, and now I'm playing a different position. He could have very easily gone in the tank. Dylan Penn, he didn't come in here with any loyalty to this program. Like He didn't come in here like it have to be a good soldier. He very easily could have been a me-first guy. He wasn't. Very clearly was not a me-first guy. Team player battled through his own personal adversity in terms of his health and finding his role, stuck with it, didn't get down when the two team was 2-7, and seven, just put his head down, kept working, and then he became, by the end of the year, he became the most valuable player in the conference. Finn Sullivan deserved the player of the year, absolutely is a full-season award in terms of conference play. Finn Sullivan deserved it, but by the end, Dylan Penn was the guy. And to have that kind of season-long arc and to have that kind of, you know, to battle through that, I, I think it's impressive. To build chemistry, to learn to play with guys, to love guys, to value guys, to find your footing, and by the end of the year, to be at a point where you can take over and you are the guy, whereas at the beginning of the year, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. That That's impressive. Growth, evolution, stick-to-itness. Whatever you want to call it, Dylan Penn had it, and I'm going to miss watching him play in a Catamount uniform. I also think what Matt Verretto has done is unbelievable. There's a reason why on the CBS broadcast they highlighted Matt Verretto's story right as the game started. It is that impressive. And I, I, I don't know. We haven't talked about it enough, and I don't know that people are talking about it enough. Matt Verretto took three years off from college basketball. Three years. He was just a regular college student. He had a job lined up on Wall Street, and all of a sudden, without having played competitively in three years, he enters the transfer portal with two days to go and goes from just not only just making the team but to being a starter who's now getting 15 in the conference title game and getting you nine here in the NCAA tournament, that is an incredible story. I give this team a lot of credit for building a team, a team full of transfers that it's not a guarantee that they're going to gel, but they did. The coaching staff got them to gel. The players themselves gelled well. And then the players turned around and supported each other and loved each other. And that, that to me, 
this team very easily at 2-7 and seven could have cracked. And they didn't. And these players didn't crack. And you deserve a lot of credit for that. I know this is not moral victory Friday. I wanted to win this game. I wanted to win in the tournament this year. And it didn't happen. And I'm ticked about that. And I'm sad for it. But this team does deserve credit for what it accomplished and how it did it. Because it wasn't easy. John Becker called this the most unexpected of the NCAA tournament runs he's had here. I can see that. You lost four starters from a year ago. You're backfilling the roster with transfers, one of which that hasn't played in three years. You're counting on some freshmen in a way that you weren't last year in terms of like TJ Hurley. Guys taking on increased roles like a Cam Gibson who wasn't as big a factor last year. There was a lot of unknown about this team, and they still stuck together and figured it out. And I do think that's impressive. I think that's impressive when teams do that. And there is a lot that I'm going to miss about this team. Some of these players will be back next year. Not all of them. Not a lot of them even. But this team will never exist again. And there are things I'm going to miss. Number one, I am going to miss watching Robin Duncan play. And I will be the first to admit it to you. I did not fully appreciate Robin Duncan last year. I remember specifically talking with Robin Dun- or talking about Robin Duncan and saying, hey, he doesn't score that much. He's not the scorer that Ernie was. He's not the shooter that Everett was. And he's just he's not as good as his brothers. I remember saying something to that effect. I could not have been more wrong. And this season proved it. Yes, Ernie and Everett were better scorers, but that does not mean that they were necessarily better players. Robin Duncan is an excellent player, and I'm going to miss watching him. One, I don't know that I have seen a guy play harder in a UVM uniform than I saw Robin Duncan play this year. I don't know that I've seen a guy do more for a team in a UVM uniform than I saw Robin Duncan do this year. To be a point guard your entire life and then change positions midseason and become a center and be really good at it, that is... Nearly impossible to do. He did it. He did it for the team. He did it because that's what the team needed. And then he did it well. He guarded bigger players. He guarded more physical players. He took on mismatches. He rebounded in the post. Not easy. He did it. So he played hard. He was selfless. And by the way, Robin Duncan is an incredible passer. I am going to miss seeing him on the low block whip left-handed passes across the lane. His passing ability and his passing vision, I mean, Trey Bell Haynes comes to mind as a guy who's a great passer here in my time in Catamount Country, but Robin Duncan is right up there. I'm going to miss watching him play. And his presence will be missed in this team and in this program. I'm going to miss watching Dylan Penn play. Because I've never seen a player like him in my now seven seasons covering this team. A guy who can get to the lane that easily, finish with the left, finish with the right, jump hook, Scott or baby hook, you know, reverse layup, physical player, tough player, could get to the lane. I've seen guys that can light it up from deep. I've seen Ryan Davis, I've seen Steph Smith. I've seen Lamb get hot. I've seen Ernie get hot. Kurt Steidel. I've seen got Peyton Henson. I've seen a lot of guys that can shoot it from deep. I've seen guys that can bang down low like Lamb and Davis. I've seen guards that I love watching play like Shungu and Trey Bell Haynes. But I've never seen a player quite like Dylan Penn. Just a unique game in an era where everybody wants to when some guys can only shoot threes. Dylan Penn brought more to the table, and we got to see it for a year. And I'm going to miss that as well. I'm going to miss Cam Gibson's ability to do the fundamental things. And that's going to sound really stupid and really corny, but I've always said this. The women's game is very, very fundamental. If you are someone who just loves basketball, the women's game is something you should watch. The men's game, a lot of times, is predicated on athleticism. 
running faster, jumping higher, etc. Physicality can can dictate the men's game. Cam Gibson is a throwback player to me, and I'm going to miss watching that. He's a not that he's not athletic, he is, but he's a guy who's really good at the fundamentals. Head fake, one dribble. Ball fake on a pass. He just does that stuff. And I'm going to miss watching that too. Finn Sullivan's ability to play defense. Finn's ability to kind of just kind of loaf through the lane. And I don't mean that negatively, but just kind of effortlessly move through the lane and fire up a, a left-handed layup. I'm going to, this team was special. Was it as good as other teams in the past? No, it wasn't. Did it have flaws? Yes, it did. And those flaws were exploited today in a 17-point loss to Marquette. But that doesn't mean that there's not things about this team that you should appreciate. Because there's things that I appreciate. Absolutely, 100%. And I'm sad to see it end. Congratulations to the seniors on a great career. And uh, look forward to watching what guys do from afar. I imagine some of these guys will try to play overseas. We'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, I think Dylan Penn certainly can. Ben Sullivan probably can. And now it's going to come down to if they want to. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, brought to you by Fecto Homes here on this St. Patrick's Day Friday. Was the season a success? We'll talk about it next here on DEV. DEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Brian McLaughlin, the voice of the Catamounts on the radio, is going to be with us here in about five minutes as the Catamounts are... Uh, I know headed back to the hotel. I think that's where Brian's going to be calling from, so we'll get him for a couple of minutes. UVM season ends on the men's side, 78-61 to against Marquette, and uh, season is over now. 23 regular season wins, three more in the conference tournament. It certainly was a fun season. My question for you, 802-585-3026, was the season a success? Was the season a success? And for me, that answer is yes. But there's two separate discussions that need to get held. One, and, and both things can be true. I say this all the time. Two things can be true at the same time, and both things are true here. One, this season was a success. Two, the program did not grow this year right on the micro level this season was a success this team got to the ncaa tournament look at what this team accomplished this team won the league it won the league after dropping two early games in the league it won the league after going two and seven to start non-conference it won the league when bryant came in and was supposed to be a great challenger Right? It won the league when the league's top end got better around it. UMass Lowell was better. New Hampshire was better. So this team winning the league, getting the number one seed, winning the conference tournament on national television, this team bringing in a bunch of new players and succeeding, that is a success. Anytime you get to the NCAA tournament from a one-bid league, that is a successful year. right? And whether you win the whole thing or you get blown out in the first round, getting there from a one-bid league is an accomplishment. It is a success. So, yes, I will look back at this season and say that this UVM team had a good year. There were players that got better individually. There were players that grow. There was a good coaching staff that elevated players. They figured out how to handle adversity. And they got to the tournament, and they won the league, and they did it again. And, oh, by the way, the program also had yet another America East Player of the Year, seven consecutive America East Players of the Year. That is, to me, by definition, a successful season. But, on the other hand, we can look at this honestly and have an honest conversation and say this also. The program did not take a step forward this year. Right? Micro level, good. Macro level, lacking. I have bigger goals for this program, and you should too. I'm not unrealistic in my goals. 
I don't want to. I'm not saying this program needs to get a five seed. Needs to become the next Wichita State and get a one seed. And I'm not asking them to become the next Gonzaga, but I have bigger goals. My goals are not only to get to the NCAA tournament. My goals are to win in the NCAA tournament. And for me, it is time to accomplish that. 2005 was a great memory. The TJ Sorrentine shot is a great memory. It's time to create a new memory. And it's time to have winning a game in the tournament be an expectation. That is where I am at. I want to see this program put itself in a great position to win games in the tournament every single year. And getting 15 seeds and getting 16 seeds is not the way to do that. I want to see this program, instead of starting out 2-7 and seven in the non-conference, I want to see them start out 7-2. and two. And I want to see them with some signature wins in November and December so that when they run through the league, they can put themselves on the 12 line come March. Because if you can get on the 12 line, you can win. If you can get on the 13 line even, you have an opportunity to be able to win. So we can look at this both ways. The season is a success, but to me, the program didn't grow this year because the program ended up as a 15 seed. We've been there. We've done that. I want to be on the 12 line. I want to be on the 13 line. Why can Furman be a team that pulls an upset and UVM can't? Why are we talking about college? I had someone tell me College of Charleston could make a Final Four run. Why can UVM not be thought of in a, I don't need a Final Four run, but why can they not be the team that everyone is talking about from the mid-major level? That is where I want to be. I saw Sienna do it 2008, 2009. I saw Sienna get get a nine seed and beat Ohio State in the first round. Mid-major, low-major teams can be that team. I want UVM to get there. It's the Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Joining us now live from Columbus is the voice of the Catamounts. He's made time for us a couple of times this year. It's Brian, McGraw- uh, Brian McLaughlin. Excuse me. Brian, how are you? I'm on the show. How are you? I'm, I'm good, buddy. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we'll get into the game in a second, but we'll put a bow on the conversation that uh, I was just having. To me, the season is a success, but the program didn't grow as a result of this season. Do you see it the same way? There, I would disagree, and here's why. I think the development of certain players this year has been a major success, and I I totally hear your point about, look, last year they were a a 13 seed, and – and this year you're a 15 seed. But look, this was the first time, Brady, since the 2003 through 2005 stretch that Vermont has made back-to-back tournaments. Mm-hmm. And so just getting back to the tournament this year, I would have as a, as a success. And like you said, the season overall very successful this year. And I think that what John Becker and his staff have done really well and underratedly well is they've done a great job in the transfer pool. Yeah. Look, you're losing guys this offseason, no doubt. But they have proven that they can go out and find some both hidden gems in the likes of Matt Barreto, Illyrio Falia, who I think were major player development wins this year. And they can also go out and get the stars. They can go out and get Dylan Penn in the portal. They brought in Finn Sullivan and Cam Gibson in the portal, two guys that won two American East titles in two seasons. And so I totally see your point about wanting Vermont to become that, that 12 seed that makes maybe a sweet 16 run. I don't think this program is that far away, and I do think the program has adapted to the times really well. I think they've advanced the offense in a number of ways under um, namely associate head coach Ryan Schneider. And uh, I do think that this program took a step forward this year. Just It's not as big of a step forward as we would like, right? I'd like to be talking to you after a win right now, and I'm not. One thing that I continue to be impressed by about this team uh, on the macro level is not only their ability to bring in players from the portal, but also to retain players. This program doesn't lose players very often, and I look at the transfer portal yesterday. Clarence Daniels, the best player at New Hampshire, he's in it. He's going to be gone. Jonathan Beagle, rookie of the year in this league at Albany, he's in the portal. He's going to be gone. So 
we talk about why the league is the way the league is. Well, all these other programs are losing guys. UVM retains their own and is able to bring in the guys you're talking about. I think that's a major testament to what's been built here. Phenomenal point from you. And it's an overused term that I'm about to throw around, but something that really defines this Vermont program, and it's the culture. The culture in the locker room. Guys like Robin Duncan sticking around for five years. Aaron Deloney, the guy who's now been around for four years. Nick Fiorillo is coming back next year. Still with a couple years of eligibility remaining. You've got guys that have been around this program that then pass it on to the younger kids. And, look, I'm around this team a lot. I see a lot of players on a daily basis. They all genuinely like each other. They like being around each other. They have fun. They're laughing. Um, They're playing games in the locker room before these games. It is just genuinely a program that builds relationships in that locker room um, and builds a sense of identity, a sense of unity that, frankly, I'm not sure other programs have been able to replicate especially at the mid-major level, especially in the American East. And that's nothing against any other program's culture. But what John Becker has done in uniting teams year after year, um, I think you're spot on. The ability to retain talent has been as important to this program's success as anything else over the last couple of seasons. Brian McLaughlin, voice of the Catamounts, here with us on the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV. I know you're kind of up against it, so if you need to cut out, let me know. But as for the game itself, 78-61 was the final. There's kind of a bunch of different reasons to me why this outcome happened to you. What was the biggest reason? Into this game, Brady, if if we don't turn the ball over and they make shots, we're going to have a fighting chance. The Cats would be in the game. The first half, they did those two things. You know, Marquette turns teams over a lot. Six turnovers in one half, more than we've been used to this season watching Vermont. But they made threes. They made six threes on 12 tries. And the three-point shots stopped falling in the second half. Do I think they win this game necessarily if, say, they, they make seven second-half threes instead of two? I'm not sure. But I do think, obviously, that's just more points. You keep the game closer. They never were really able to hit that run-stopping shot. And I tell you what, what a performance from Cam Jones. Tyler Kolick, the Big East player of the year, got banged up early. You might have seen it on TV if you were watching. Had tape on his right wrist. Um, and for a moment, you're never rooting for anybody to get banged up, right? But that's a little bit of a window of an opportunity. You need those things to happen if you want to pull off an upset. Well, Cam Jones came out in the second half and scored 18 points in a row for Marquette. Um, and Vermont had answers here or there. They had opportunities to swing the game. I think about that flagrant foul where O'Leary Iofalia splits the free throws and then Vermont goes empty on that possession. Marquette goes back down and hits a three. Say O'Leary makes both free throws, Vermont makes a three. All of a sudden, this is a very different game. So Vermont left a couple of opportunities out there. It just didn't make second half shots. And this Marquette team can score it, Brady. Man, they have so many weapons that can score the ball. Shot makers, drivers. Oso Igadaro is a six foot nine distributor, a really impressive finisher, and a really impressive six foot nine defender. I came away really impressed with Marquette. Did Vermont play their best game? No, but Marquette just took care of business today. They were they were certainly impressive. I always say if you're going to pull an upset, your stars have to play like stars, and you have to get star-like performances from them. I know the box score is not going to reflect that Dylan Penn had a great game in terms of scoring. Yes, they probably needed him to get 18-20 to if they wanted to win. He only, in quotes, got 11. But I was very, very impressed by what he did today. He was 5 of 10 from the floor. He hit a 3. He was tasked with being the playmaker. He got guys shots at a time when it was hard to do it. He was the only guy, really, that could get to the lane consistently against this defense. He had a lot on his plate today. I thought he did well. You know, Again, I know they probably needed more scoring, but I thought he acquitted himself very well. Playing this moment for years. Came to Vermont to play in this game. I think that's why you saw him play so well in the American tournament. This has been a man on a mission for a couple of weeks now. I thought Dylan, I, I would agree. I thought Dylan played well for the most part on the offensive end. A couple of turnovers that I, I think he probably wants back. And I did not think Dylan had the best defensive game, to be honest with you, Brady. There were a couple times that uh, his assignment, David Joplin, rose up and hit threes after Dylan went under ball screens. That would be something that I was slightly critical of on air. And um, But Marquette made shots, and I think Dylan had, like you said, 
what what he's best at is getting in the lane and finishing. He hit a couple of just power five shots in and around the rim of ability to throw the ball up at the hoop and have the right touch, the right English on it. Um, yeah, he played he played well enough that if you get help from some other pieces, you make a couple threes around him, that's when his game really opens up, right? They were able to collapse on him in the second half when shooters were not knocking down threes. So it just wasn't quite the right recipe today. UVM offensively just didn't make enough shots. And sometimes that's just how it goes. And when you're playing a really tough team, even if you play okay, you're going to end up losing by almost 20 points just because they are so good. Defense, or not defensively, definitively, I think we can say Finn Sullivan did not have a good game. 0 of 6 from the floor, 2 of 9 overall, just four points. If the team was going to pull an upset or saying that they needed more from Finn, disappointing end to a great season for him. Player of the year in the league, he deserved it. But three of the last four games, he scores in single digits and kind of uh, limps to the finish line. Streaky player. I think that's one of the more obvious statements I've probably ever made on your show. Today, he didn't have it, and he hasn't had it a couple of times down the stretch. But it's also fair to say he's the reason they won the regular season title. Yes. And, so, um, and it's because he can get so unbelievably scorching hot. Um, and so he just has not been able to quite find that shooting stroke recently. I thought he took a couple of off shots in his shot selection early in this game, kind of threw him off from there. Vermont wasn't able to get him a great look early, which I know they wanted to generate good looks for Finn early in this game to try to get him going. Because like I think I told you, when Finn Sullivan's at his best, I like this team against just about anybody nationwide. They didn't get Finn Sullivan at, their, at his best today, although credit goes to Finn. He still defended with some guts today. Yes. I know Tyler Kolick was banged up, but Kolick didn't get to double figures. And when Kolick was in the game, Finn Sullivan was the guy guarding him. And so Finn did not have it on the offensive end. I'm sure he would tell you the same. But I was really proud of the way that he still was able to defend. They locked in. And he had some moments earlier in the season where his emotions got out of control. I never felt like that today. I felt like his emotions were always in check and just didn't have a shooting stroke. Brian McLaughlin, voice of the Catamounts. Brian, I'll let you go on this. I know you guys are going to be coming back to town here soon, so I'll leave you on this note. There's going to be a lot of time in the offseason to dissect what happens next for this team. For me, right off the bat, my biggest question moving forward is, what does Aaron Deloney do? Because he's got the year of eligibility. The question is, is he going to use that, and is he going to use that here? That's my biggest question. What is your biggest question moving forward? AD coming back would be um, a massive question mark. Of course, he did not walk um, on senior day. He was able to walk if he chose to. He did not choose to walk on senior day. But I, I cannot say whether I have – I don't have any insider info there for you. I think he's probably still mulling that over. And But, look, if AD does come back next year, you're looking at a team that still needs a ball handler. So can you go out and either recruit a player that is ready to come in and handle the ball right away – or go into the transfer portal and get one because the core of this team that are likely returning are three very good forwards. You love the front court that's coming back. Matt Verretto was awesome today, man, and he was awesome for most of America's play. O'Leary Iofalia has proven to be an elite defender, and then you have a great passer in Nick Fiorillo that hopefully at full strength again next year, that is a monster front court. The question is the guard play. If you can bring Deloney back with T.J. Hurley, who I think had some real moments as a true freshman this year, the Catamounts are really high on a guy they're redshirting this season, Jackson Skipper. I've seen Skip in practices go on days where he is scoring against this team's starting lineup. So if you can bring back that core, they're going to be looking to add a couple of guards in the transfer portal, in particular a point guard. Um, and if Deloney were to leave for whatever reason, then you're looking for some extra scoring at the guard position. I think, personally, I would love to see AD back. I think the fans would love to see AD back. But again, he's got to do his best for him, and he's going to make that decision one way or the other. And uh, hopefully we see him in the green and gold next year, along with maybe a veteran point guard from the transfer portal, maybe another talented freshman with the youngsters of Skipper and Hurley. That, to me, is a really good nucleus that you're returning, even though I talked about it on air today. You're losing your four starting guards of Gibson, Sullivan, Penn, and Duncan. That's obviously a massive group of losses. But overall, I think there's real reason for optimism. And 
Look, the, the way this game is going, the coaches are already in the transfer portal. They've already been contacting guys. They've already been working hard on the recruiting trail. The, the next season has already begun, Brady. It's wild and <laughs> Hey, get you out of here on this one. Yesterday, Princeton of 15 beats Arizona at 2. Are you thinking that that gives the Catamounts confidence that it can be done, or are you thinking to yourself, kind of hard to do that twice in the same tournament, and that's a bad, that's a bad omen going into today? Bus. Um, it was it was a real question, and it was fun to watch Princeton get that win. Um, and uh, two years ago, there was two 15 seeds that upset two two seeds. But I was certainly like, oh boy, right, we'll see, we'll see now. And I, I kind of had that thought already of like, we'll see. I think we got a shot. I'm not sure. And so when when Princeton got that win, there was that like, they kind of just made that look routine. Like they played Arizona really tough. So uh, I, who knows if that made it more likely or less likely for UVM to get the upset today. I was definitely <laughs> entertained hearing the coaches talk about that. And I mean, everybody's watching March Madness on our phones during practice. Like I've got the games up. Everybody's asking me for other scores. But people definitely knew that game was going on and, and knew that Princeton had pulled off the upset. Brian McLaughlin, voice of the Catamounts. Brian, we appreciate you joining us a couple times this year. I'm sure we'll catch up again in the off season and, uh, We'll see what next year brings. So we look forward to it. Thanks, buddy. I'll see you soon. There goes Brian McLaughlin, voice of the Catamounts. We appreciate him being with us as he was a couple of times this year. Uh, I'm going to put a bow on the interview with Brian. A couple of things that uh, he said that really stuck out to me. We'll get into some of those big questions for UVM as we move forward here in the Brady Farkas Show. Brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV AM and FM. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Fecto Homes here on WDEV-AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. On the idea of whether or not the season is a success, uh, Ross says no matter how far they go in the tournament, we should be happy they've gotten there. And I agree we should all be happy, but we can all still want more in the program. I did like what Brian McLaughlin had to say that he thinks, you know, he disagreed with me a little bit. Um, he thinks the program did take a step forward in terms of team development and player development. I guess I take that as part of a season-long success rather than a program-wide success. So we can agree to disagree on that. But Brian joined us from the hotel. Appreciate him being with us, making some time today, kind of giving his perspective on the team, the program, and on the game. Um, first off, I want to thank everybody who has been invested in our Catamount coverage this year, first and foremost. Um, we talked a lot more UVM hoops probably than I've ever done in my career just because I thought there was the appetite for it. And the text line, social media, people were invested in this team and people were invested in this run. So if you are one of those people, thank you. appreciate it. I want to thank the people at UVM. We had a bunch of great interviews this year dating all the way back to November, right? We had associate head coach Ryan Schneider on. Dylan Penn came on. Robin Duncan came on. Aaron Deloney came on a couple of times. We had Finn Sullivan on. Uh, we had other people from, from press conferences. So appreciated everybody, again, who was invested in this program and who was invested in our coverage. And uh, thank you to the people at UVM who also helped make it happen. This program does have questions moving forward, and I would say there are three big ones. One is what happens now in the transfer portal for you, and Brian alluded to that. You're going to lose four starters next year. Finn Sullivan, the player of the year, is gone. Dylan Penn, second team all-conference, most valuable player of the tournament, gone. Cam Gibson, a good three-point shooter, gone. Robin Duncan, the heart and soul of your team, gone. How do you replace that? You're going to have to do it in the transfer portal now. This is no longer just we can bring in a guy and bring him along and hold him for four years, and by senior year he's a beast. That is not how this works anymore, at least not here. You are going to have to get into the portal and get guys who can instantly contribute, and you don't just need one, you need a bunch. Four players, four starters gone. You lost four starters last year too. And I don't know that these guys that were on the bench this year are going to be able to all just take their place. You're going to need to get some studs out of the portal. And, yes, they're in it. I know they just reached out to a guy from Buffalo. I know they've reached out to a guy from somewhere else. So they'll, they're in the portal. They're doing their due diligence. But they need to find guys, and they need to find impact guys 
from the portal as well. So that's number one. How do you replace four starters? Number two, to me, is along those lines, what happens with Aaron Deloney? Because if he leaves, you could have to replace five huge pieces. I don't think this team can afford to lose five huge pieces. I think that Aaron Deloney is really, really good. I think that he is really, really important, and I want to see him back. That said, I don't know if he's going to be back. Here's the scenario, right? Deloney has been here for four seasons. Every player that was around during COVID got an extra year. So Deloney has a fifth year. Ryan Davis had a fifth year this year, didn't take it, right? Went and played overseas. Maybe Deloney does that. Steph Smith had a fifth year. Went and used it at St. John's, did not come back here. Robin Duncan had a fifth year, came back here. I don't know how this is going to go for Deloney. I don't know. what Does he want to come back, carry on the legacy, be a fifth-year guy, try to be a guy who helps the team win a tournament game, and be the man on this team? Does he want to do that? Or does he want to go to a Power 5 program or to a bigger program? Or does he want to try to be a role player on a team that can win multiple games in the tournament? like Steph Smith did. Steph Smith said, I want to go to the Big East. And he said he didn't regret it. And yeah, they didn't get to the tournament, but he didn't regret it. Maybe, does Deloney want to do that? Maybe. I don't know, but maybe. And by the way, or does he want to go play pro? I can start making money. I don't know what he wants to do. I won't begrudge him for anything, though. I want to see Aaron Deloney back, but he stayed four years. He doesn't owe Vermont anything beyond that. So if he leaves, I will support him every step of the way like I did with Steph Smith. I just hope that he's back. And if he is back, it's one less question and one more answer for this program. And then finally, the big question holding up, holding over everything is, what is up with the arena? Right? What is up with the arena? Because this program needs it. The women's program needs it. We want UVM to take that next step. I'm talking about them getting on the 12 line, the 13 line. The arena is a way to do that. UVM, if it wants to be thought of in a big light, then it needs to give itself resources to be thought of in that way. These players deserve it. The women's players deserve it. The coaching staffs deserve it. We want the program to take the next step. Maybe the next step is getting better athletes that are now impressed by their ability to have an all-world facility. The fans deserve it. So those three things are big issues now. And that's where the offseason is going to go. The transfer portal for next year, the arena, and Deloney. And that, I think, is uh, those are big questions. Text line's open, 802-585-3026. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, of course, open all show long. Uh, let's see. We'll update you on what's happening around the tournament right now, get you some scores. And Iona is uh, trailing UConn. UConn up 75-59 to 59 at this point. Um I don't need live video. Oh, there you go. Pitt has beaten Iowa State. That's a women's game. Uh, that's a women's game as well. Creighton just won also. So let me see how many games we are down to at this point. It might just be the two. Iona and UConn, 74-59. Maybe we are just at the one. we got a couple games that have wrapped up. The next game starts at 650. That's fairly Dickinson and Purdue with our coverage again beginning uh, at 7, and uh, Kentucky will be the first game on the docket there. Um, it was a great season for UVM. It was a fun season. I enjoyed it, and uh, I hope you did as well. Uh, I want to transition out of college basketball. I want to get into football. Patriots news and notes. Got a bunch of it from today. Patriots with a couple of roster moves, two of which fairly shocking. I'll tell you what those were next on the EV. And on the sports stories of the day, text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, 
and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Fecto Homes here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We go up until 7 o'clock, and then we kick it on over to NCAA tournament coverage. We've talked nothing but UVM basketball here for the first 75 minutes. I want to transition into other news of the day right now, which is what's going on with the Patriots. A couple of big roster moves today. One, the Patriots released defensive back Jalen Mills, and that's interesting because Mills was a part of their big spending binge in the 2021 offseason and kind of thought he'd be a guy who was here for a couple of years, and he ends up being here for just two years, and now he's back out on the job market. The Patriots now will continue to have needs in the secondary, right? Their secondary situation is murky, at least at defensive back. They have Jonathan Jones, they have Jack Jones, and they have Marcus Jones. So they have the three brother, the, the three brothers Joneses there. And then you don't really know what's there. Miles Bryant and a couple other pieces that we're not really sure about. A couple of guys we haven't talked much about. Some guys we haven't even heard of. Safety is where, you know, Mills is a guy who likes to play safety. Patriots could have transitioned in there with Devin McCourty retiring. They decided not to. So Mills is gone. Their secondary upheaval. The Patriots clearly need secondary help come draft time. Does it have to be in the first round? That I don't know. But they clearly need secondary help. So Mills is gone. They also went out and made a fairly prominent move on offense today, getting tight end Mike Gesicki. Mike Gesicki formerly of the Miami Dolphins. It's a one-year deal, $4.5 million guarantees. It's up to $9 million. This is a move that we all like. This move is kind of universally liked. But it's, there are questions with it, too. I, I'm going to choose to be optimistic. The Patriots now have given themselves another offensive weapon, right? This week, they lost Jonu Smith and Jacoby Myers. They've replaced them with Juju Smith-Schuster and Mike Kosicki. I would say Juju and Jacoby are close to the same player. Gesicki is seen as a guy who can be an upgrade from Jonu Smith. And even though Gesicki is a tight end, he's a guy who plays more kind of as a receiver. He's also extremely big. He could be a good red zone target for Mac Jones. So I'll be positive on the Gesicki signing. But out with two, in with two. Jermaine Wiggins, the former Patriots tight end, he liked the move to get Gesicki. Yeah, I, I think when you kind of look at this situation here, I think it's a guy you bring in that has the potential to be really good. He had a little bit of a down year last year, dealt with some injuries. Uh, One-year deal, so that tells me he's like kind of like on a prove-it type of thing. Like, let me show everybody I still got it and try to hit that big payday. So I think it's a solid move. I mean, Gesicki had a very down year last year, only 32 catches, right? And he played in every game, so he didn't have injuries last year. He, had, he only had 32 catches, though he had 73 the year before that. Now, I think a lot of it was Mike McDaniel came in, wanted to play with his new toy Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell, and there was less in there for the tight end. I think a lot of it was that. I don't think it's that Kosicki just stinks. But you're going to have to find a way to properly use him. They found a way to use him in Miami in 2021. They couldn't find a way in 2022. So you get Kosicki. You get Juju, you lose Jacoby, you lose John U. Smith. I will choose to say I think the Patriots are slightly better off now than they were with those two. I think I'd rather have Jacoby than Juju. I'd rather have Gesicki than John U. Smith. So I think it's close to a break even. I'll give just a bit of a bump to now's group because of Gesicki, I think, being a good upgrade over John New Smith. The, the problems for the Patriots, by the way, they also got uh, running back James Robinson. Had a great year a couple of years ago for the Jaguars. Now he's uh, going to be with the Pats too, likely going to replace um, who I would imagine is Damian Harris leaving. Harris, I can't see coming back. Right, He's going to be a free agent or is a free agent. So they haven't re-signed him yet. I don't think he'll be back. They get James Robinson, and there you go. So the Pats are, are backfilling the roster now. The same question, though, that I had the other day still remains. The Patriots need a number one. Where are they going to get it? That That's what I want to know. Where are the Patriots going to get a number one? Because Mike Kosicki is not your number one. He's not going to be your Travis Kelsey. 
He's not going to be, you know, Juju's not a number one. He's not going to be your A.J. Brown. You need a number one. Are you going to get it in the draft? Are you going to try to sign Odell Beckham? I don't trade for DeAndre Hopkins. I don't know. But right now, it is not there. So you can have all these nice supplemental pieces that you want, but you need somebody to make that offense go, and the Pats just don't have it. So I will continue to be bothered by that. Uh, I was listening to Colin Cowherd earlier today, and he was on Fox Sports Radio. He says the Patriots made a bad choice bringing in Juju Smith-Schuster. The Chiefs smartly said, well, you're talented. We'll bring you in for a one-year deal. We won't pay you, but we'll give you a incentive-laden contract. Like $7.5 million was just incentives. $2.5 million was actual salary. They didn't pay him anything. What did he do? He was productive. He played with urgency. He was very good. So did the Chiefs re-sign him? Hell no. Let him walk. The Patriots stepped in to give him a three-year deal. Silly, brand, loyal, TikTok obsessed Juju Smith-Schuster. This is the kind of deal the Patriot fans would have laughed at years ago, other teams being the sucker. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, but I think Colin is being too harsh. Juju Smith-Schuster did have issues in Pittsburgh, right? He was too into himself, too into his brand, too into TikTok. That is very much true. I am hoping that a year in Kansas City, a year where he won the Super Bowl, and a year around Patrick Mahomes, I am hoping that that has recalibrated him to care more about winning than his brand. So Collins pointing to issues he had a couple of years ago. I am hoping that last year kind of set him straight and that now he's reinvested in winning because he's seen it and because he's realized it's fun and he's realized that it's more fun. So I am... I think that's a little harsh of Colin. As for the Patriot fans laughing at this kind of deal in the past, I don't know they would have laughed at this kind of deal. They would have laughed at a guy. Or they would have laughed at a team that took a chance on a guy who was about himself. If the Patriots had gotten Juju Smith-Schuster just from Pittsburgh straight up, right after all that stuff, then, yeah, that would have been a problem. But I think right now they're hoping there's this year-long buffer. And I don't think that the, the Chiefs didn't just bring Juju, Smith, Juju, uh, Juju Smith-Schuster back because they thought, hey, we got lucky with you for a year. We ain't going to pay you. I think they just realized, like, Mahomes can make anybody good. And I think that is what they think. They can't spend a ton of money on receivers. And Mahomes will do the job. So I think they see their team building as, like, we'll do it through the draft and we'll do it through cheap free agency. I think – I think the Chiefs just can't want to, didn't want to afford Juju Smith-Schuster. It's not like they were like, hey, we used you for a year, now we're done with you, go be a problem child again. I think they just wanted to upgrade their offensive line, and that's where they decided to spend their money. So I think Colin is being a little too harsh there. Mike Reese of ESPN said he's worried about Juju's ability to stay healthy. And if Juju can stay healthy... Sort of a big if, pricey. That's the one yeah. risk there. I, I think when I think about the risk with Juju, it's like a lot of lot of wear and tear through the first stretch of his career. And uh, I was talking to some people who had covered him the last couple of years, and they tell stories of seeing him in the locker room, like in the AFC Championship game this year, where he didn't finish the game because of his knee. Well, it's the NFL. You're going to be concerned about every player. I understand some players have more concerns than others. I will say this. Juju Smith-Schuster played in 16 of 17 games this year for the Chiefs. So his first year, 16-game schedule, he played in 14. 2018, he played in every game. 2019, he played in 12. 2020, the COVID year, he played in all 16. 2021, he was really banged up and missed... 12 games this year alone he only missed one he has been largely durable in his career outside of 2021 so I'm worried about every player in the NFL staying healthy I'm not gonna sit here and say oh Juju Smith-Schuster is injury prone though right every player in the NFL is one play away from being out for the season that's just the reality the unfortunate reality of the sport 
My bigger issue with Juju Smith-Schuster is he's going to be able to learn the playbook because we've seen so many times guys come in, veteran guys come in, and not be able to, to learn the playbook. Right, from Reggie Wayne to Joey Galloway to, you know, Demarius Thomas couldn't stick. And I don't mean it's because he didn't know the playbook. R.I.P. Demarius Thomas. But, you know, he just he wasn't on the team at the end of the year. All these veteran guys that just don't quite figure it out. Juju Smith-Schuster is going to be 27 years old. He should be entering the prime of his career athletically. I want to know, can he come in, pick up the system quick enough? Can the Patriots get the system implemented well enough? For him to succeed. That's that's what I would say. That would be my question there. It's my question with every veteran the Patriots bring in. Uh, one other thing. I hope you saw this. Jacoby Myers was introduced yesterday in Vegas as a new member of the Raiders. Obviously after signing a three-year deal there. He was asked about the play last year for the Patriots where there was the lateral play where Ramondre Stevenson had the ball. He flipped it back to uh, Myers. Myers tried to throw a pass to Mac Jones and it got... It got picked off by Chandler Jones and taken to the house. Well, Jacoby Myers was asked about that play. I mean, uh, that that was a that was a humbling experience, you know. As a man, as a football player, that was that was just tough, you know. I I knew what it meant to the team that I was on at the time, and so it, it really hurt me because, like I said, family is really big for me. So when I went through it, in the moment, my heart was broken, you know. But days after, just seeing how guys kind of rallied around me, it built me up as a person. So. Now I know, like, whenever one of my teammates mess up, who I want to be in that situation, you know? Like, how I want to help them, what type of love, what type of support I want to give. So, now, if you ask me directly what happened, I don't know. That's the truth. Like, I really don't know. It just, I had the ball and I didn't have the ball. That's a phenomenal answer to a tough and uncomfortable question. Jacoby Myers makes the most boneheaded play maybe of the season. Certainly, I'm sure, of his career. And the Patriots missed the playoffs by not that many games, maybe by one game, and that game could have been the difference. Jacoby Myers knows that's a big deal, and he knows that's a horrible play. He gets asked about it. That's about as mature an answer as you can give. And that's one of the reasons why I love Jacoby Myers, and I wish he was still playing for the Patriots. I mean, he says, look, man, that taught me that I want to be a great teammate. That taught me that I want to be there for my guys. That that, that You talk about turning a negative into a positive. I guess I eat that stuff up, and Jacoby Myers was great. I wish he was playing for the Pats still. Uh, as good as Juju Smith-Schuster might be or as many physical skills as he might have, Jacoby Myers is a guy who's been here and done it as a leader in that locker room. You just saw there why he's a leader in the locker room. Five minutes from now, we're going to kick it over to NCAA tournament coverage. Providence in Kentucky tonight. Drake in Miami. Grand Canyon and Gonzaga, Florida Atlantic and Memphis, Montana State and Kansas State, Kent State and Indiana, Arizona State and TCU. And uh, I think those games in Albany are going to start later. There's been a pretty massive delay because of something with the rim in uh, the UConn-Iona game. Thanks to Brian McLaughlin, the broadcaster for UVM men's basketball, for stopping by and joining us live from Columbus. Catamount season ends 78-61 a loss against Marquette. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe. Happy St. Patrick's Day night, and I'll see you back here on Monday on the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto.